Welcome back to episode 130 of Camera Conversations with your host, Colin Campbell. In today's conversation, we're talking about how to use caffeine effectively. To do so, I'm joined by Ben Escrow. Ben is the co-founder and head of research and product development at Elemental Formulations and a genuine expert in this space. Ben has that perfect blend of experience and knowledge for today's topic. And with his master's degree in pharmaceutical science, he's actually in a position to really dive into the different drugs, substances, and supplements. And with caffeine being one of the most used supplements and drugs in the world, it's an exciting topic for us to dive into. You can expect to learn how our bodies react to caffeine and how caffeine reacts within our bodies itself. Understanding this enables you to better employ caffeine for both physical performance benefits, but also the cognitive mental benefits that you can reap. Ben and I discuss things like the sources that you can get caffeine from, the dosages, how our genetics influence our absorption and reaction to it, as well as practical implementations that we both personally do. One of the key areas that Ben touches on is whether there's potential to become less sensitive to caffeine over time and whether you might need to cycle off it. I loved learning about the different responses that people have to it. And when we started to discuss things like the genetic profile, it's very detail-orientated, but I love the fact that it explores practical elements of it and delves into evolutionary psychology like warrior or warrior reactions and whether you can be a fast or slow metabolizer of caffeine. This conversation has so much packed within it and you're in for a fantastic 55 minutes. Today's podcast is sponsored and supported by Crypto Glasgow. Founders Donald and Deck have been on the podcast three times now, sharing the principles behind the most exciting and challenging of investment markets that is cryptocurrency. The crypto space is vast, it's growing, and it's very easy to get lost within the noise. We've seen so much controversy in recent weeks with the tanking of Luna, but there's also so many positive stories within the crypto market if you can seek them out. Investing in crypto does definitely differ to some other asset classes, and the Crypto Glasgow team have got you covered with over 20 years investing experience combined across all asset classes. And you can rely on their specific crypto expertise to navigate what is genuinely quite a confusing market. Whether you're somebody that's interested in investing in the longer term like myself, or you've got more risk appetite and you want to trade and swing trade and day trade, you can do that via the guys at Crypto Glasgow. You can visit the website, which is www.ccgla.co.uk. It'll be linked in the show notes. And you can join the Discord, which I'm a member of, or you can get involved with one of their startup guides or their level up guide, or even set up a consultation one-on-one with one of the team to explore how you can take advantage of the cryptocurrency space and start to build some wealth. Before we dive into this episode, I just want to say that last week's podcast downloads were absolutely crazy, considering it was just a solo Q&A with myself. It was one of the highest ever listened to podcasts in its first week. And I hope you're all sticking around for future episodes because there's so much more to come from this podcast. Ben is a real expert in the space of a supplement and a drug that we all take lots of on a daily basis. So we can rinse and repeat that. And I've got other conversations that you're going to love in the future. Please make sure you're subscribed or following or whatever your app you're on and you've left a five-star rating if you're on Apple or on Spotify. But that's enough from me. You've got 55 minutes of the wise and wonderful Ben Escrow coming into your ears right now. Welcome back to Cambro Conversations. Today's conversation, we are going down the rabbit hole on a big topic that I've been really interested to do on the podcast since I started just over two years ago now. That topic's caffeine, and the guest to help me do so is Mr. Ben Escrow. Ben, thank you for joining me. 
thank you for having me and and finding me as we discussed prior to the call <laughs> yes yes I, I i i do i do my research on who would be the best equipped guest to discuss particular topics and that doesn't necessarily mean that that person has a a big glitzy instagram profile but as we discussed ben you've done numerous interviews you've been on countless podcasts speaking in depth across supplementation and stimulants and that equips you really well because one of the, the things that stands out about you is obviously you've got your master's in pharmaceutical um, sciences but of course you've been at the forefront of supplements for well over a decade now with de novo and now with um, elemental formulations that equips you to be somebody that applies to the kind of audience that would listen to a podcast like this who are listening in who are interested in like their health and their fitness, but also their cognitive performance and work. And if I purely went for somebody that had posted a reel that was absolutely smashing out of the park with a couple of facts about caffeine that was really interesting, but quite surface yeah. level, then yeah. we'd, we'd, we'd burn out quite quickly. And somebody might get some key takeaways, but we can go much deeper and somebody can get a really thorough understanding of it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is that is my forte. And that is definitely long form is, uh, I feel like where I shine. If you give me 30 seconds, I don't know if you'll get anything useful. So uh, maybe you could clip 30 seconds from here, but I would much prefer to get into the nuance and uh, really all of the things that make physiology, pharmacology, formulating um, interesting to me. I mean, that's really where uh, my passion on these topics comes from. And, and my knowledge is that I'm genuinely just interested in, in how the human body works and, and why how you can alter consciousness in any way. I think that's so fascinating. And, and, you know, the reality without getting way too far ahead of ourselves is like, you know, caffeine is psychoactive. Like it, it's, it's a stimulant. It changes your conscious experience of, of life. And I, that's just very, very fascinating to me. That's something a plant makes um, that we just happen to stumble upon and brew a tea out of, or brew something, you know, uh, out of in, in hot water, we find that, oh man, it makes, makes me feel great. I need to have it every day and it makes me feel like I have more energy and happier. Uh, th that's, that's amazing. Like it's almost like people think that uh, drug companies existed forever and, and like methamphetamine was just out there growing on the meth plant. And uh, no, we, we, we've had stimulants as long as we've been on the planet. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll stop there, but I, I think the last thing I'll say is arguably um, probably arguably safer, uh, and more sustainable ones than than the pharmaceutical ones that, that are available. Yeah, exactly that, Ben. So I guess if we were to define our terms before we go into caffeine as a drug and a supplement or a stimulant, can you define pharmacology for us? Sure, yeah. So um, pharmacology is basically the the study of of drugs and their impact on on physiology. So so how drugs how drugs work. Um, it, you can really divide it into branches. Uh, you can talk about pharmacokinetics, which is basically liberation of a, a drug, um, absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion. Um, so if you ever see something pop up where you're looking at studies, or you're looking at something more technically written, and it's talking about the pharmacokinetics. That's basically all the areas that it will cover in that discipline. And then pharmacodynamics is defining the mechanism of action of, you know, how this thing works. Uh, another I think better way to put it that I, I've, I've had in classes is pharmacokinetics is how the body handles the drug and then pharmacodynamics is how the drug impacts the body. 
Yeah, that's exactly how I split it in my research for this conversation. And I think the first area I'd love to go with you would be understanding what are the pharmacokinetics of caffeine. So that would be how the body handles caffeine when it takes it on board. Yeah. Um, so the, the nice part about caffeine is it's one of the most studied stimulants we have. Uh, I, I think for, for numerous reasons, there's medicinal value in caffeine uh, really throughout the lifespan, um, you know, from from infants to uh, elderly, there, there's applications of, of caffeine use. So that has driven, I think, a lot of the research behind it. Uh, we know that it's very well absorbed. It's like 99% bioavailable. So if you take 100 milligrams of caffeine, uh, about 99 milligrams will be yielded to uh, systemic circulation and available to tissues to utilize. Uh, there's, there's an interesting sort of slight segue to get into with that just because I've seen in pre-workouts this popularization of caffeine salts, and they're not a necessity. Um, we know that caffeine in its base form, um, so caffeine anhydrous, or what's what's present in in a tea or a coffee, um, we know that that's extremely bioavailable. Usually, drug companies or supplement companies will make a salt of a poorly bioavailable uh, ingredient, and the reason they do that is to make it more water soluble. And solubility is a very important aspect. But what what makes caffeine so bioavailable is it's, it's called amphoteric, which basically means it's water soluble enough and it's fat soluble enough that it can, uh, it can dissolve in liquid, which is, you know, the, the medium of the human body and it can pass through, uh, cell membranes, which are, uh, as, as anyone who's taken basic biology has heard is, you know, the, the, the uh, lipid phospholipid bilayer. So you have to basically for a drug to be active and get and get dissolved and absorbed into the body, it has to be able to pass. It has to be slightly water soluble and slightly fat soluble. So there's this really ideal range um, that you need to operate it within. And caffeine it, it is caffeine is in, ticks that box, enable yep. to enable it to have the maximal uptake of what you take. So you mentioned there, 100 milligrams, almost 99% of that is being absorbed yep. by the body. So it's it's very effective from that perspective and so that and the argument i've seen made of the marketing of caffeine salts is they'll hit faster but the reality is when you take caffeine and hydrous or you drink a tea or anything you've actually you peak blood levels from 15 to 90 minutes so it's fast like uh you're not going to get much faster than that and one of the advantages is when you look at different delivery systems of any compound uh like one of them so technically, a supplement can only be orally provided, whereas a drug can be injection, it could be a patch, it can be multiple, like transdermal. Um, but the interesting aspect of things like caffeine and nicotine is because they are lipophilic enough, they can pass through uh, plasma membranes, you can actually get buccal absorption. So uh, you'll get some absorption of caffeine even in the cheek, um, under the tongue. So the reality is you're already starting to absorb some caffeine before even, you know, gets through the, uh, the, the small intestine gets in the small intestine. So, so basically the, you know, the, the real key point there is we don't need to make salts of caffeine because there's a, there's, there's an issue with how quickly it gets into the blood um, or how efficiently it does so. And it gets in pretty quickly indeed, but not immediately because some people, when we were discussing before we hit record, there's some bad habits within the, the fitness yeah. space where people expect their caffeine that they have, maybe during a training session to have an impact on that training session but we can get into that in a little bit of, in, in a little bit but i'd love to learn just a little bit more about the like how does the body react to caffeine what's going on there 
Sure. Um, yeah, well, well, on that topic, actually, the only way you'd get immediate is by an injection, which which is no longer a supplement. So, so you that, that that's eliminated as an option anyway. Um, so, really, the next aspect aspect to touch on is uh, what's called first pass. So, after caffeine would be absorbed, uh, everything that's that's consumed orally is going to go to the liver first. Basically, the liver is going to decide what to do with it, uh, if it's going to deactivate it or allow it to kind of pass into systemic circulation. There's not a uh, significant or extensive first pass metabolism of caffeine. So basically, like I said, 99% bioavailable. Um, so 99 of those 100 are going to get into the blood and be able to you know, act on tissues. Um, once it is into the blood, obviously, when, when you take caffeine, you're not stimmed forever, like you need to typically redose. So the way that we measure uh, how quickly it's metabolized and broken down and eliminated is something called half-life. Uh, so it's a marker of, of metabolism. And the caffeine half-life is variable, uh, and that's largely dependent on genetic factors, also some behavioral uh, factors. Um, one of those things is a liver enzyme called CYP1A2. It's the primary um, pathway that caffeine is degraded and, and deactivated. Uh, and that that varies between individuals. So uh, I know, for in instance, I'm a slow metabolizer of caffeine. Um, so it will stay more active in me. So the half-life for me will be longer versus somebody who, uh, let's just say, if you observe people, someone who needs to drink a cup of coffee like every hour to kind of keep feeling it or something. For me, I take caffeine at noon and I feel it until almost bedtime. Um, so that's the long-winded way of saying that there is a variable half-life of caffeine. It is not this firmly established three, four hours. It's actually anywhere from two to nine hours. So if you take the average, um, it would be around five hours that caffeine uh, is active at, at at that level until half of it. Um, that's why it's called half-life. So if, let's say you took that 100 milligrams, five hours later, you'd be at 50. And then another five hours later, you'd be at 25. It's not like, uh, so it takes a while. It takes a while until it's completely eliminated for, from your system. I think that's where we really need to go in depth of the impact of when you're using caffeine within your day. And if we first go to it absorbing into the, the the body in order to have an impact. So for example, you said it was 15 to 90 minutes. So if I'm thinking about that, that from a practical implementation from my training, and if I'm wanting it for a training performance benefit, I need to be having that at least 15 to 90 minutes before sure. I'm doing my important working sets, I suppose, within my mm -hmm. training. If we're talking about resistance training, for example, in, in, in a typical um, sense, whereas I was laughing with you again, like I said, before we hit record that you do see some people carrying their pre-workout or their energy drink around the gym with them when really the impact on their session and their performance is going to be negligible from that beverage because sure. it's going to be after the fact when they finish up their session, unless they're training for a hugely extended period of time, that's a little bit of a waste. Yeah. I mean, I think this is where, there's answers on paper and then there's also sort of personality and uh personal preference aspects so i think if you were to say like what's ideal on paper i would say you know you should drink your energy drink pre-workout probably on the way to the gym if you want it to peak once you get there you could also drink it during your warm-ups assuming people warm up i hope they do um because you'd have about 15 minutes warm up then you'd start you know reaching peak plasma concentrations um around when you start getting to your work sets. Uh, but someone like me, which is interesting, is like, I'll drink a pre-workout um, or a caffeine source 
usually after I wake up and have breakfast. Um, again, that's partially because it lasts so long for me um, that I'll use it almost for work and and my workout. And by the time, you know, three, four hours later when I'm getting to the gym, I'm still kind of relatively feeling it and peaked enough that I'm getting those benefits, those um, those psychological benefits as well uh, of, you know, like perceived exertion reduction, stuff like that. Uh, so it, it is, you know, there is, I, I guess, an ideal on paper, but, you know, there's there's certainly room for uh, fitting it into to how it works best for, for you as an individual as well. I just think the big thing is uh, understanding that caffeine does impact sleep and sleep is a big aspect of recovery. And, you know, once we talk a little bit about pharmacodynamics, I think I'll be able to illuminate why exactly it does impact sleep and and it's directly related to how caffeine works and produces its its stimulation. Yeah, almost as a little bit of a teaser to that then, you're talking about half-life there and you're saying for the average person, which most people listening to this will be somewhere in the middle and, and somewhere around that, is, is, is roughly five hours. So if we're talking yeah. about a, a typical pre-workout drink, I absolutely love a Monster or a Rain, and that's maybe 150 meg. I've still got 75 meg in my system yep. five hours later. And if I train in the evening and I take it, very close to my workout then i am going to sleep with 75 or i'm attempting to go to sleep or attempting to enter sleep with 75 meg in my system which is not insignificant it's not and and that's the thing is you know there are ideal ranges of where uh alertness uh and the psychoactive components are, are maximized but it doesn't mean that 75 just because you don't feel it as a stimulant doesn't impact sleep um it does it, it's not it's not the same sleep. Um, and that is pretty well established, just like people who use, um, you know, benzos, uh, or, or drugs to sleep like sedatives, that is not the same sleep architecture as someone who fell asleep, uh, not under the influence of, of drugs. Uh, it's, it's actually alcohol like as well. Then, um, yeah, exactly. And, using and that's, alcohol to get to sleep. That, that's why alcohol actually works on, on GABA. That's partly why people feel loosened up from, um, from consuming alcohol. Uh, it's just that, you know, a lot of the GABA uh, active drugs are quite a bit more potent and um, arguably more dangerous than, than alcohol as well. Yeah, it's it, it's very, very interesting. And when we're talking about the considerations of timing around your training, of course, you've got to have the mental trade off of will this impact my sleep and my recovery? Because ultimately, I know, for example, whenever I have a deload week, I pretty much don't have any caffeine. And we're going to get into maybe whether that's necessary or not as, as we go. I'd love to learn that from you. But I find that some of my sessions are absolutely fine, even without yeah. caffeine. But my sleep is incredible because I'm having no caffeine at all for like a week. And I'm like, wow, like I just sleep like a baby. I wake up even even more fresh. So even the small amount that I maybe have left in my system, if I tell you my caffeine habits um, as we go through the discussion, um, that's still impacting my sleep in some way because when I have none, I find my sleep's even better. And I'm more rested, which is definitely... Uh, a sticking point versus my my slight addiction and passion for for a for a cold white monster sure sure yeah i mean the the socially acceptable uh addiction to have drug addiction to have um but i yeah i, I think another fascinating aspect is um i'll rewind a little bit to talking about metabolism of caffeine and cyp1a2 the primary metabolite is actually something called paraxanthine um so it's it's demethylated at, at one of the positions. So um, caffeine is trimethylxanthine. Trimethylxanthine, it's 137, where there's uh, carbon kind of projecting off of the ring. And um, I forget exactly which one that 
CYP1A2 demethylates, but you make paraxanthine, a compound called paraxanthine, and paraxanthine is actually psychoactive as well. So what's fascinating is it's true that, you know, five hours later, roughly, you will have half of the amount of caffeine floating around, but you'll also have paraxanthine, which is, which is psychoactive as a stimulant. So uh, there's a lot to account for. And that's a large reason why when I said I'm, I'm using caffeine, I use it in dur- as, as early in the day as I can, because if I take it at five, I'm not sleeping until four in the morning. Yeah, because of how slowly you metabolize it and how yeah. your personality reacts to it as well, which yeah. is is interesting. Have you done some some tests which understand how you like what genotyping yeah. you have? So I used um I used twenty three and Me. It's a pretty popular genotyping service. Um, they send you a spit kit, <laughs> um, which is how they. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, I, you can extract DNA from uh from saliva, so I'm guessing that's how they do it, and then they probably amplify it like with PCR or something, but anyway, you get, um, you get a full report and this, I did it early before the FDA intervened for a bit and you couldn't get the health reports. So I had the health reports and all of the, uh, ancestry aspects too. Um, now I'm pretty sure that they have pulled back that FDA regulation to where people who use it now can get the health reports again. Um, but anyway, what's really fascinating about that is, you do get, uh, it tells you that, you know, if you're a caffeine fast or slow metabolizer based on your CYP1A2 genotyping. Um, but man, if for anybody who's nerdy or just loves technical information, you can actually dive into individual uh, chromosomes and look at your individual uh, polymorphisms and see uh, many things. Like you can use external services. One of them is called Prometheus, where you could dig into uh, a bunch of individual uh, they're called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, and how those impact personality, and like any any research that's been done on any of those different individual codes that you have. So uh, totally worth it. I think when I did it was a hundred. I think it's still around that, but uh, it'll give you caffeine, um, uh, which is a great takeaway because it means that you've shaped your habits around that, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, I mean, it'll give you other interesting stuff that you're going to know anyway. Uh, but it's like, okay, it just helps me know it's accurate, like likely to have brown hair, likely to likely to uh, bald. So I, I would have known that already. But thank you, 23andMe, for, for confirming what has happened. <laughs> In terms of moving forward, then uh, the pharma dynamics of caffeine, what, uh, what can we learn about that? Yeah, so I think what's what's fascinating is it works on a few different mechanisms. Um, one of the ones that people will have heard of is uh, it works on the adenosine receptor. Uh, prior, the most of the effects of caffeine were thought to be related to working on phosphodiesterase, it's PDE. Um, but actually now the current accepted mechanism is it's, it's largely most potent in working on adenosine receptors. And that's what's producing pretty much all of the physiological effects. And the reason that they've uh confirmed is a bad word but let's let's just use it for sake of keeping the conversation going uh the reason they've confirmed it is is they've been able to look at you know relative potency of how it acts on these receptors and it seems to be the most potent at adenosine receptors um so where adenosine receptors tie into this entire conversation is uh it's a natural receptor in your body that's present and the the endogenous so the the, the ligand or the key that fits into that receptor in normal physiology is, is adenosine. Uh, you make adenosine, you, you basically cleave ATP 
and you create free adenosine throughout the day. And adenosine, when it builds on the receptor and it sticks to it and you get a bunch floating around and a bunch of interactions at the receptor, it, it's, it's one of the major factors in fatigue and producing sleep, uh, sleep pressure as it's been, as it's been called. Um, so basically adenosine is very important in signaling sleep-wake cycling. Uh, how caffeine works is it looks similar to adenosine and that means chemically it looks similar, the structure, um, but it, it's able to competitively uh, fight for docking at that receptor with, with adenosine. And if you have enough present, it can actually bind the receptor and stop adenosine from interacting. Uh, and there's then multiple kind of downstream uh, implications of that. One is that obviously you get short-term wake, wakefulness. Uh, when adenosine docks the receptor, as you'd imagine, uh, it also impacts different neurotransmitters in the central nervous system, like dopamine, serotonin, um, epinephrine, things that actually make you feel wakeful. Uh, so when you block that receptor, uh, when you block adenosine from interacting, you actually can get uh, more release of those wakeful promoting neurotransmitters. That's why people say, you know, well, if it just works on adenosine receptors, why do I have dopaminergic effects from caffeine? Why do I have uh, increases in heart rate that are traditional like adrenergic uh, effects from, from caffeine? And, and that's why is when you're blocking that receptor, you're actually stopping uh, adenosine's inhibition on releasing those neurotransmitters. Um, the it's other a gateway, it's a gateway to other feelings and other, other effects. Yes, exactly. Uh, and you know, there's a more direct one, which now I, I'm going on a stretch here. So, uh, anybody who's, you know, a, a purist scientist will, you, you're welcome to call me out. I'm calling myself out on it, but, um, my understanding and theory of why caffeine has such a, an, an addictive property is actually adenosine receptors are functionally coupled to dopamine receptors. So basically what that means is when you block the adenosine receptor, you actually will allow more dopamine release. Um, and when you, uh, when adenosine is acting on dopamine receptor, you will impair, uh, you will reduce dopamine release and think about it, you know, practically whenever, when you're really tired, you're usually grumpy, you're usually moody, you're usually not super motivated. Um, so it's, you know, there's a lot of a direct effects from adenosine, um, blocking, but then there's a lot of indirect ones, which is uh, explains the broad effects of, of, of caffeine. Um, I'll stop there because I, I kind of ran on and rambled a bit and I don't want to misdirect the conversation. No, no, I, I, I think that's valuable from a scientific perspective to understand what's going on within our bodies when the this, this substance comes in and which of the parts of our body and our brain and our mind and our, our cells it interacts with. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to know, you mentioned there things like reduction in tiredness, increase in slight wakefulness, probably a reduction in like perceived level of exertion as well. That's why it's so useful as a training tool. What are yep. some of those headlines in terms of this happens within my body, within the um, within adenosine? What does that actually mean for me in in the day to day? Yeah, so uh, those those neurotransmitters I talked about they're called catecholamines and and they're largely implicated in uh, motivation, um, energy, wakefulness. So uh, really anything that fits into those categories are what you're going to feel more. I mean, obviously anybody who's consumed caffeine will know that and feel that. Um, but that's largely what you're getting. And a lot of that increased heart rate, like I said, is coming from, uh, that, that indirect effect on things like norepinephrine, um, and, and pressor drugs, like they're called. Um, 
But yeah, I think the big one is usually uh, is dopamine because um, dopamine is a stimulant, but it's also very potent at motivation. Um, so I, I think I think a big part that you're you're experiencing with that caffeine uh, hit is more related to the indirect effects on on the neurotransmitters from you know from the offshoot of, of blocking adenosine receptors yes. oh uh, real real quick i think something to mention there as well is uh caffeine crash because that's such a heavily marketed thing um where companies will just make up these ridiculous claims like we put vitamins into our formula to prevent caffeine crash and all of that nonsense uh the reality is like I said, the the mechanism uh, is an adenosine receptor antagonist, and it's competitive. So what that means is you still have adenosine floating around there. So once caffeine is bound to the adenosine receptor, once it unbinds, all of that adenosine can come in, and usually it's building up, like it's not disappearing. Uh, really, the only way to wash away adenosine from the receptor is to sleep. Um, so that explains multiple aspects of why it's important to not have caffeine around bedtime, but also why people feel that crash and they'll feel that really rapid pull away once caffeine starts to be metabolized. Um, and it's like, man, I felt great and I've just fallen off the cliff and I've crashed. And it's largely because, you know, if you take caffeine because you're underslept, that means you have adenosine built up. So short term, you can compete with that. You can stop the adenosine from exerting its effects. But as soon as the caffeine Whereas often metabolizes, you're going to get this flood of adenosine at receptors and you're going to feel like garbage. And yeah, if you that chronically over time, you're going to chronically feel like garbage. You need to sleep. Are you familiar with the phrase robbing Peter to pay Paul? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I was just checking that that made its way across the Atlantic. Um, so <laughs> it, it that that is exactly what that screams to me in terms of if you are chronically fatigued and you're masking it with an agent, a supplement like caffeine, you are just stealing from the next day's recovery yep. and what ultimately you need to do is cleanse the adenosine from the body through restorative deep sleep yep. and if by not doing and by like maybe putting off some of the tiredness that you've got today you're just going to be in the same situation tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and it's a it's a never-ending unfortunate cycle it is and you know I'll, I'll be honest that it, it's, it's a hard thing to kick. I mean, it, it really does have reinforcing effects like caffeine withdrawal is a real thing. Um, and that's, that's pretty classic of most compounds that work on dopamine, like withdrawal usually becomes a part of, of, of removing that, that compound from your, your daily habits. So it, it is, it's hard. And, and that, that happens at fairly low doses. Um, but it's also why, like, again, just to get to something practical that I've implemented from just learning uh, more about caffeine and, and neurotransmitters is like, I, I set myself a hard limit on caffeine, which is 400. And that's based upon knowing that once I pass 400 in a day, I will have withdrawal the next, the next day, like uh, pretty consistently. So if I stay below 400, uh, usually the next day I can go without caffeine, without like a terrible headache and not being completely useless. Um, productivity wise. Uh, and that, that is also the currently accepted upper intake for caffeine of, uh, of daily amount where there's really no negative effects shown. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that does lead us on to, to dosages, because if we're thinking about gym performance or cognitive performance, what are some of the levels of intake that are required to start to feel those effects? 
Yeah, cognitive is is surprisingly low. Um, so using body weight, it's it's a half a milligram per kilo up to four milligrams per kilo. So pretty wide range. But I think what you'll notice immediately if you think about a lot of commercial products that are out there, like that means like uh, a lot of sodas will actually hit that that low amount. Um, or something as simple as like a cup of coffee can vary, but you know, it could be like 40 to 80. So that's why, you know, people will have their, their morning coffee or tea. Um, so you are hitting that cognitive benefit range, usually with fairly low or, or uh, less potent sources. Um, and then when you get into physical performance, it, it goes pretty high end, uh, really anywhere from three to five uh, milligrams per kilo. So if, assuming 100 you know, kilogram person, that gets up to pretty high intakes. Now there have been studies that have gone that have gone higher, like seven to nine. Um, yeah. It just seems to be that uh, you don't tend to get much better after five milligrams per kilo. And of course, which is true of anything with dosing, is the higher you go, uh, the more probability you also have for side effects. So uh, you may feel more stimulated at at nine milligrams per kilo versus five, but you're also going to have a much higher likelihood of feeling anxiety, feeling jitters, feeling a worse crash, withdrawal, all those things. Yeah, and 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 even and not to be too graphic, but um caffeine can be a bit of a diuretic when it comes to the <laughs> yeah, bathroom sure. as well. So yeah. if you're trying if you're trying to train and you're constantly needing to go pee or or otherwise, sure. that's going to be a bit of a, a, a distraction for you. I think one of the studies that I saw a number of years ago now was around that 5 to 6 mark where it was like five to six milligrams per kilo body weight. And I worked it out. That would mean for me, I'm normally between like 72 <laughs> to like 80 kilos, depending how lean I am. And I would be taking like 380 milligrams of caffeine at the bottom end of that in like one dose before the gym. And I know for a fact I would have the shakes. Like I don't have a particularly high tolerance for it. I probably have one caffeinated drink per day on a training day only. And I feel a little bit of buzz from it. I feel like I, I talk quicker. I'm a bit more... Yeah. Uh, a bit more energized um if i if i have a if i'm if i've for whatever reason on a day if i had like uh, maybe some like some pre-workout and then i had the drink earlier in the day as well and it's maybe still in my system yeah. wow i'm like i'm like shaky my hands are like going and it's not it's not actually conducive to great performance and i know if i had 380 milligrams that i don't know say i was training at five o'clock at night and i took it at, even at three is my cutoff 10 p.m. when I'm trying to wind down, I am still full of caffeine and not even close to sleeping. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, um, you know, again, this this gets into talking about uh, more slightly other pathways, but ones that bleed into the caffeine conversation that I've mentioned before, uh, like adrenaline, uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, um, and that fight or flight response. So what's interesting is, again, like I said, you know, effects are, are dose dependent. And you will um, get a, a scaled effect from, let's say you go up to double the dose you're used to, you will get, I, I don't know if necessarily I'd say double the stimulation, but more than, more than prior uh, if you've doubled the dose. And one of those things, uh, like I said, that the caffeine will, will affect is, is epinephrine, or let's just use the, the common term uh, adrenaline. And there is also, funny enough, you can get that information from 23andMe as well. You will have a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A binary response to uh, adrenaline release. Whereas some people, it's why they call it fight or flight response. 
some people uh, actually get actually the way they define it um, in common uh, articles that talk about is the war warrior versus warrior gene. Uh, and that actually drives your response to adrenaline release. So uh, if you go on that high end, you are more likely, if you're a warrior, it might actually work well for you. You might actually have a better workout. You might get more aggressive, more zoned in. If you're a warrior, it could be much worse where, you know, you're going to be panicked. You're going to get a lot of anxiety. And I think that's why we uh, anecdotally or observationally, we see some people say, I love high caffeine. And some people say, oh, my God, it gives me terrible anxiety. It gives me terrible jitters. Um, it's not really the compound that is changing. It's how it's interacting with the diff the person's, you know, in unique. Genetic code. Yeah. 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 And I wonder if there's an overlap between those individuals that metabolize very quickly and whether you're a warrior or a warrior, that would be an that interesting. Um, I can say, I, I can certainly give you an N of one. Uh, and I am a slow metabolizer and I am balanced, but favoring warrior side. So uh, I wonder if there's a, a slow metabolizer and warrior side, but I mean, I have my parents' information and I know my mom is warrior, but fast metabolizer. So uh, we may, we may have just uh, like made the start of someone uh, publishing a new study on caffeine and, and uh, if so it reaches the right ears, we can, uh, we, we can be involved in that. Yeah, they, better, they better credit this podcast. Damn it. What, uh, what impact does the source that we have um, have? So, for example, you mentioned it needs to be water-soluble and fat-soluble, but is there any impact on whether I take it from a pre-workout powder or a, a caffeine capsule, which is very popular, or, of course, an energy drink or, or, or a cup of coffee? Yeah, there doesn't appear to be, and they have studied that. They've actually compared uh, all three of them or four of them, like tea, capsules, um, coffee, energy drink, and they all seem to peak around the same time. You seem to have relatively the same bioavailability from all of them. Um, so it doesn't seem that that's a major factor. Yeah. One of the things that always strikes me is that sometimes some of the, the for example, the fizzy drinks that you have, they have a little bit of an, an acidic profile. And yep. I think sometimes if you were to take them during a workout, your stomach might be in fight or flight, like you were saying, depending on how you respond to that kind of thing as well. Yeah, I mean, you you need to you need to consider carbonation is is gas. I mean, it's 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 carbon dioxide trapped in in cold liquid. Um, so if you drink it down fast, that's why you burp. I mean, you have to eliminate that carbon dioxide. And interestingly enough, again, this is sort of tangential, but why you know in the past when I've competed in bodybuilding shows and dieted for extended periods of time, that's why I would really prefer diet soda um, because it would help me feel full. Um, cause again, it's gas and gas causes expansion. So, um, so yeah, that, that certainly is a factor, especially if you're chugging, uh, you know, uh, an energy drink that's, that's carbonated, it, it will definitely make you feel a little more bloated versus, you know, a, a slow consumption of coffee or something else. Yeah. Given your, um, your knowledge of how you respond to caffeine, you mentioned you use it in the morning before, before like to work, but then also before you work out. How do you find dosing it in terms of what are the benefits for you when you're maybe doing some deep work on your laptop and studies and, or, or writing? Well, something? typically, uh, so yeah, an important uh, qualification of, of that is that it's got to be a big enough dose for me. Like if I take 100 milligrams, I do feel that I crash um, 
earlier than anticipated and it's not an improvement in productivity. So I usually take what would be called a bolus dose. So one large dose for the day. Um, and it's usually around 300. Like for example, today I got up around 1030. Um, so I'm not an early riser by any means. Um, so I ate and then I had uh, about 300, 350. Uh, and then I, that's, that'll be it for the day. So I won't redose. I won't, you know, take any more or anything like that. And, um, that's enough. So, I mean, that was, like I said, that was now four or five hours ago and I feel comfortably peaked. And Energetic. I- yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And, uh, when you pushed it over the 400 that you said is your tolerance work output less, you, you, you don't do so well. I'd say I'm a little more distracted. Um, a little more racy thoughts, a little more um, uh, hard. To, it's more difficult to stay on task. Uh, like I'm more just jumpy in general. Um, it will, I'll feel it longer. Obviously we talked about half-life, you know, it'll be more active dose later. Um, my sleep is typically worse. And then the next day is usually worse as well. And in terms of, and this is not just from your own perspective um, and your own experience, Ben, different types of training probably respond to different types of protocols when it comes to caffeine, I imagine. So we're talking about, and I think you were saying that the the, the higher end is that like nine, nine milligrams per kilo, which is just crazy in my, like yeah, it's in my mind. I don't even know how I would consume that without <laughs> passing out. Uh, but having it at that lower end, like what, what training has that been tested against, I suppose, in terms of the benefits? So is it like your traditional resistance training? Is it one rep max? Is it strong man? What, what kind of training is it? That's a good question. Um, I can only give a limited response because uh, I will admit I am not encyclopedic when it comes to the studies that have been performed. I mean, I know some people who can name the author of the study, the name of the study, all of that stuff. Um, I usually just remember the takeaways. Uh, so off the top of my head, what I do know is a lot of stuff. It's been cycling where they've looked at it. I know there have been strength training studies where they have gone higher, um, like seven to nine. Um, but I, I think practically the way I'd look at it is start low, go slow. So start as low as you can, um, as you need to, like, just because you've read a study that says seven to nine is the best for strength training doesn't mean you should go right up to seven to nine. Like if you don't, know your sensitivity that could be unbelievably that that could you're gonna have like they say in south park you're gonna have a bad time (laughs) um so i I think it should always be on an as needed basis and i think you also need to take the full scope of everything into context if you are considering an increasing dose and i know people don't like this people are like oh man like it's just not fun you're not giving fun advice but uh i think if you really are starting to have problems where you find you need caffeine just just to function, um, to do anything or to be motivated, I think you do need to take a look at these things. And one of them is uh, find really, like start at 100 and see how that feels. Do you feel anything? Give yourself a half hour, 45 minutes to let it peak. Um, okay, if that's not, maybe go 150, maybe go two, maybe go 250. It like, and you could do this sort of within the same day. Like you only have to wait 15, 20 minutes or start with the half scoop of the pre-workout uh, and before you go to a full. Because uh, once it's in your body, there's nothing you could do to get it out of there. You, you got to deal with it for those, you know, five to six hours. Um, so always start start low, like I said, and, and kind of go go slower up. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the best way with, with any form of, 
protocol, isn't it? The minimum effective doses tends to be the the best protocol because uh, is it possible to build a tolerance to caffeine? So, for example, I see people chasing the same high that they got before by having more. Is that uh, is that is that actually being reflected in what's going on inside their body, yeah. or is that a mental thing? That's a great question. Um, I know that you, the affinity doesn't change, like uh, the binding to the adenosine receptor doesn't change, but it does seem, and th this has been more recent where I've seen that, it does seem that the neurotransmitter response begins to get blunted over time. Um, and I think that's why people seem to note that they've, they lose their sensitivity. I don't think that's necessarily what's happening. Um, cause I think it's still, it's, it's still binding adenosine receptor, but just like anything, like your body always has some type of, um, physiological response to putting in any outside substance. And usually that means that metabolism will get upregulated. Um, like it's going to do something to save you from like to, to keep homeostasis, to keep things normalized. Um, so I think once it realizes that, oh man, we've seen this thing before, we don't need to release, we don't need to flood the system with neurotransmitters. It's likely that's what happens. Um, it doesn't seem that 1, 1A2, the, the uh, pathway that metabolizes caffeine, doesn't seem that that gets upregulated by caffeine intake. But what's, what's interesting and why this isn't just a straight, easy answer is other things can impact uh, 1A2 uh, induction. So they can actually block 1A2 independently, or they can cause your body to start producing more 1A2. One of those things is smoking. So if you're a smoker, you will actually induce 1A2 and produce more of it, and you will be a faster caffeine metabolizer versus whether you would have if you hadn't smoked. Um, and then things like birth control. So particularly for, you know, for females who are on uh, any type of uh, hormonal birth control, that will actually um, make them more sensitive to caffeine. Uh, so those are things, uh, and actually an SSRI as well will block 1A2. Um, it's uh, flu fluvoxamine. And uh, that, so that will cause you to have higher blood levels of caffeine versus if you hadn't, if you're, you weren't taking that, that, uh, that drug. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's certainly an important distinction there as well, is it, it's, it's not just, you know, one factor, like physiology is complicated. Yeah, of course. It's it's not just a case of um, this one particular person responds really um, differently to caffeine because of this one factor. It might be because of the yeah. genetics, but also because of the other lifestyle factors they've got. Maybe smoking, birth control, SSRIs, lots of different things that go on there. The other thing that I think needs to be considered um, within that is if you're chronically taking caffeine and you're taking it late and it's affecting your sleep, although you don't think it is and it's a high enough dose, part of the issue might not be that you've lost sensitivity to caffeine. It's that you chronically have adenosine. And, you know, when you talk about competitive inhibition um, or uh, competitive antagonism um, on a purely uh, biochemical basis, it's, it's amounts. So, you know, if you have more present, you can actually overcome uh, the natural. So like if there's a lot of caffeine present, you can overcome the adenosine binding at the receptor versus if there's a lot of adenosine, you're not going to get the same binding and effect um, of caffeine. And I think that's partly what's happening with people who, who think that they've lost sensitivity. It's just that they're chronically underslept and they're chronically over caffeinating to try to uh, beat it out on a dose perspective. And you can. So 
Like if you're escalating and you usually take 100 and that stopped working and you're undersleeping, but you take 400, like I said, now you've upped the dose, you've, you've changed the equation. So you probably will feel something, but you're not addressing the root of the problem, which is not your caffeine insensitivity. Yeah, it's the fact that you're not clearing the adenosine through sleep. Correct. Yep. Well, sleep's the answer to an awful lot of our problems, isn't it? It, 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 it absolutely is. Right. Yeah, I mean, caffeine's very sexy, and maybe having an extra extra can or an extra cup of coffee might feel great at the time, but we are, like we say, that horrible phrase, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Um, yep. With the information you've shared there, is it worthwhile when I have my deload weeks to remove caffeine? Uh, I think, again, I think that's probably more of a personal preference thing. Um, I don't see a necessity for it. I think, you know, for someone like me, I, I never have in practice, I've never recommended it. Um, I, I don't recommend against it. For me, like, I've never actually felt like I've lost caffeine uh, sensitivity. Um, so that's why I've never seen a reason. And I, I do like the, the productivity uh, enhancement I get from just my day-to-day -day tasks. Um, so I like taking caffeine uh, daily, whether I'm lifting or not. Um, but I think if someone finds that it, it helps kind of refresh their perspective, and I actually think, I've heard people say like, I've regained my sensitivity. I've regained the, the potency of caffeine. I think like you have said earlier, what most likely happened is they got better sleep, less interrupted sleep for a week straight. And now they actually have just, they just have less adenosine floating around. That would make terrific sense in terms of you've had better quality sleep. So you've cleared that away. So when the caffeine comes back in, even from a slightly lesser dose, you probably start to feel the effects yep. quicker. You, you, Although genetically you haven't changed your genetic code, you become a faster responder and a lower dose responder because there's less adenosine interacting with the caffeine. Yeah, you've, you've sort of reset and, and that will happen um with many things is uh like like i was talking about before like induction or upregulation. Let, let's use like a, a a classical example of induction is um like alcohol intake so an alcoholic gains tolerance to alcohol because they get induction of one a, a different sip enzyme it's it's p450 and so you will start producing more p450 to metabolize ethanol so you don't kill yourself it's it's an adaptation to to retain survival. Um, now, if you, if you stop consuming alcohol for a fairly, I don't know how long the period would be, but let's just say, uh, like a week or a couple months, you will have a lower tolerance now because you've removed that thing that's driving the adaptation. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It makes total sense. And, um, I've, been just over two and a half years I've, I've just removed alcohol i've gone alcohol free from a kind of productivity tool perspective but even before that i drank very sporadically maybe since university i would pick four or five events during the year like maybe birth like my birthday my brother's birthday a holiday and my tolerance for alcohol from when i used to drink at university like maybe once a week or whatever going to the student night and one pound drinks and stuff like that my tolerance is just through the floor. Like I, I'm just a, t I'm, I'm tipsy after like three drinks. Whereas yeah, at university, you know I, cheap date, yeah. man. So am I. Yeah, exactly. So, but like, but at university, I wasn't a heavyweight by any shape or form. I wasn't able to drink other people under the table. Yeah, but yeah. I would, I, I wouldn't be the drunkest earliest, or, or at least I wouldn't yeah. be feeling the effects and have to be like, right, okay, I'm gonna go one drink for every two that he has, so that I'm like respectable here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So it's it's funny how our tolerance to different substances differs based on the 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 inner workings of the body. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you you think about adaptation, and it, it's true. And this is why I I loved going into pharmacy and and getting uh, more of an education on that. Is it, it helped me see physiology through a whole new lens and see the I guess the universal aspects of how these things apply to what prior uh, I felt like I had a pretty deep base of knowledge on, which was resistance training and, and, you know, uh, fitness topics. And you see that, you know, your body, when you push adaptation, uh, your body's really only doing it out of necessity. It doesn't want to allocate that much energy unless it has to. So it's just like with resistance training, you remove that, that stimulus, your body's not going to adapt. Like it's not just going to grow muscle because you've willed it to happen. You kind of have to push it and force it to do that. And it's the same when you talk about chemical stimulation um, or, or, or chemical uh, using a chemical signal versus a mechanical one. Like adaptation can can be kind of broadly conceptualized, if, if, if that makes sense. You mentioned you'd prep for bodybuilding shows before. So when you were getting towards your leanest, what role did caffeine play within that? Did you find it was more important or was it roughly the same sort of response to dosages because if you're lighter maybe you need less caffeine to get the same effect because you're um, three times kilo, uh, milligram per kilo kilos different i didn't i didn't find that and i actually think that's one of the unique things about caffeine is um again i will admit this this is something i don't have evidence to to back up but it doesn't seem to be as related to body size as something like like ethanol maybe um, I think it's more related to your genetic uh, production uh, of that, you know, 1A2 enzyme. Um, so I didn't find I was more sensitive. I found that I consumed around the same amount as I, I do at a heavier body weight. So, you know, my leanest was probably 30 pounds lighter than I usually sit around. And I was about the same sensitivity. And I think, again, anecdotally, what, what you'll see is even large, uh, large individuals, they may be more sensitive to caffeine than you'd expect. Um, like you can have super heavyweights who, you know, maybe can handle, you know, two milligrams per kilo where based on the equation by body size, they should be having five to seven. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's really interesting. And, and again, it just, it's another difference with this particular substance versus like you said, ethanol, alcohol and, and things like that, where definitely there's a, there's a much closer correlation between body weight and ability to handle larger volumes yeah well and the other thing too is you know there there is no physiological role of ethanol i mean it's it's essentially a, a toxin like it's yeah it you know it 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 causes things but um there, there's there's you know there's no real beneficial uh role whereas you can argue you know that, that's interesting I, I i don't i'm trying to think now off the top of my head which one has a uh, a lower toxic dose i'm pretty sure it's it's ethanol um, but I, d I don't know that. Anyway, that's an aside. That's a toxicology question. We can toss that aside. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ben, I, I think there's been lots and lots within that conversation from a science perspective, but importantly, there's been a lot of practical takeaways as well. In terms of the ones that are sitting forefront in my mind from my discussion, there are things around the consideration around half-life, the considerations around um, how close to training you want to take it or how close to a cognitive activity you want to take it. Um, dosages in terms of what's an effective dose for people. One of the things that you mentioned that I'd love to touch on before we wrap up was around the side effects, because I've seen people 
uh, I do a lot of presenting in my in my corporate job because, of course, I do lots of this stuff on the side. Sure. There's a bit of an overlap. I see a lot of people who get nerves before public speaking and presenting, maybe have a coffee and think that that can improve yeah. things. I've said that if I'm taking quite a lot of caffeine, I feel my speech speeds up, which actually is a little bit of a negative when it comes to presenting because you want to be slow, controlled and measured. Is there a is there an element of people making a mistake there by doing that or is it a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy where they're like oh i'm somebody that gets giggly or happy on um, i'm gonna have this I'll answer it on both sides uh i'll answer it pharmacologically first and then maybe uh subjectively uh second so uh there is something there pharmacologically so uh when you look at people who take uh beta blockers for performance enhancement, which are usually performance artists like musicians or people who need to stay in the zone and not let adrenaline um, actually be destructive to their performance. Um, it, it's basically a block, you're blocking adrenaline's effects at the heart and at things that make, at places that make you feel nervous, that make you tremble a little bit, that make your heart rate go up. Um, and like we talked about earlier in the conversation, one of the spillover, the indirect effects of consuming caffeine is you will get, you know, a larger release of adrenaline. So uh, absolutely pharmacologically, there's a plausible reason to say someone who's a nervous person before a presentation probably shouldn't take a stimulant because it would amplify those nerves and amplify everything that they're kind of trying to avoid. Um, I think the subjective answer to the question is the unavoidable thing, which is know thyself. Uh, and, you know, for, for me, it's weird. Like, like I said, there's a double-edged sword where classic, like traditionally or, or on paper, I'd be defined as, as warrior versus warrior, but a little bit of adrenaline makes me better. Um, too much is a problem. So like, I would probably have a caffeine drip and I'm, drip meaning a, a lower dose like somewhere on that lower end 40 milligram maybe 100 so it's not going to spill over too much into too much adrenaline too much excitement too much um but i'm someone that arguably could benefit from a little more extroversion as well so i think it turns me on and makes me it's good that it makes me talk a little faster yeah it might sharpen you just enough but if you had too much then it might pre uh, play into that warrior piece where you'd be a bit more anxious and you wouldn't yeah. deliver to the same extent but if you had none then maybe you would be a little bit too level for maybe the high energy situation Definitely. you want to put across. Dose control is everything for sure, yeah. Yeah, well, Ben, I've absolutely loved this conversation. I'm sure the listeners have as well. If they want to continue the conversation with you, I know you fly under the radar, but where should they head towards? Uh, so uh, our our supplement company, uh, myself and Omar Issa, elemental.fit. Um, you can reach me through there. Um, and then I have, if you like the nerdy technical scientific stuff, I do have a sub page called uh at subsci on instagram i'm not as active as i'd like to be but i always try to put out some content as regularly as i can with everything i'm juggling um but we do go into the weeds on stuff like this um and then my personal instagram is at ben escrow so if someone wanted to reach me one of those three places or all three you're bound to to get in touch with me somehow yes i'll go and grab the links and they'll be in the show notes below thank you very much for joining me ben and thank you to you the listener for tuning in as always and i'll be back to speak to you all again very very soon